Well, let's turn together in God's word to the Gospel of Matthew and to chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of by, through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Well, I don't know... How many in the congregation have ever seen a coronation? The last coronation in our own country was many years ago when Queen Elizabeth II was publicly proclaimed to be queen. It had been planned for 15 months. Her father, George, had died 15 months earlier in the February of the previous year. And for 15 months, though she effectively was queen and reigning over the country, uh, Elizabeth hadn't been coronated, publicly proclaimed as queen. It was quite a, a lavish event, at least for its day. Elizabeth insisted that it had to be televised. And in those days, not everyone owned a television. Uh, and so many people went out and rented or bought a television for the occasion. The 8,000 guests who'd been invited to come and see the, the ceremony in Westminster Abbey were ushered in from 8.30 in the morning and 3 million more lined the streets of London to see the coronation procession. The service itself was 
Actually, there was quite a lot of the Bible read during it. There was the coronation oath was taken. There were multiple readings from Scripture. And uh, Elizabeth was anointed as Zadok the priest was played by the orchestra. She sat on her throne and the congregation sung, God save the Queen. Well, we find ourselves in this great passage in Matthew's Gospel this morning. And as Matthew has begun his Gospel, writing to a largely Jewish audience, he has been at pains to show them that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed, God's King. He's introduced them to that right from the outset of the Gospel as he's traced Jesus' human ancestry. He's laid out his genealogy, and at the very outset and end of that genealogy, he has said, this is the Christ. As he takes us through Jesus' unique birth, we see how people respond to him, and they respond to him on the basis of him being the king, king of the Jews. Herod hears about it, and he's angry that there's a rival king in the country. And the wise men, the, the magi, come from the east, And they have come to worship this newborn king. Jesus is king. But he has not yet been publicly proclaimed as king. And it's here in the waters of the river Jordan that Jesus now will be publicly seen and proclaimed as king. This is a wonderful passage, and it's one of those passages that we turn to and point to as evidence for uh, the Trinity. Because here we find God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all explicitly present in the pages of the Bible. And so as we think about this passage this morning, I want us to think about the role of each person of the Godhead. Uh, We'll notice firstly the Son's mission. Then secondly, we'll think about the Spirit's anointing. And thirdly, we'll consider the Father's voice, the Son's mission, the Spirit's anointing, and the Father's voice. Think with me first, please, about the Son's mission, the Son's mission. There is a gap in what we know about the incarnate life, the earthly life of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 2, Matthew has told us that as a young boy, he has come to live in this little backwater village of Nazareth, and he's called a Nazarene. He's probably around two, maybe three years of age. And now Matthew picks him up again in verse 13 of chapter 3. Now he is 30 years of age. He is about to commence his public ministry. In that gap, we can surmise that Jesus has grown up in Nazareth. He's been educated there. Maybe he's gone to school. He certainly has worked with his father for a time in his father's carpenter shop. Joseph, his earthly father. We can imagine that he would have been immersed in that small community, probably knowing many people, if not everyone, in the little village that was Nazareth. And like the people of Nazareth, as Jesus has lived his life, he has heard about this remarkable ministry of John the Baptist. He's ministering in the desert with this strange clothing, this particular diet, and he's a firebrand preacher calling the people to repentance and baptizing them in the waters of the Jordan. And people from Nazareth are flogging to see what John is all about. And Jesus goes with them. Now there's something surprising 
about that. You see, John is baptizing people who are coming to him. John's baptism is not Christian baptism, as we know it. It's a particular type of baptism. It's a baptism of repentance. John himself says that in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. His role was to announce that the king was coming and to call the people to prepare for his coming. And so they have to confess their sins. Verse 6. They are coming, baptized by John in the, the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so as John looks out over the crowds from Nazareth who are lined up and waiting to be baptised, he sees Jesus. But Jesus has no sin. What is Jesus doing waiting in line? He has no sin to confess. Just imagine with me for a moment the people who are in this queue. Workers who've stolen equipment from their bosses. Husbands who've been unfaithful to their wives. Children who've been rude to their parents. People who've committed what we might think of as lesser sins. They've been judgmental in their spirits. Proud about themselves and their minds. Gossipy with their mouth. Jealous or selfish. They've let their temper fly off the handle. And as John looks down this crowd and sees Jesus, his question in verse 14 is, what are you doing here? I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. I need to confess my sin to you. What are you doing here to be baptized by me? But you see, this is the point. This is the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he stands here in the River Jordan, he is showing us, identifying for us, why he came to earth. He has come for this very purpose to stand where sinners ought to stand. He has come to stand in our place. He's often called in the Bible, the last Adam. Or the second man. He is the second great representative of God's people. And he has come to represent them before God. As Isaiah had prophesied, he would be numbered with the transgressors. But Jesus has not only come to stand where sinners stand and take the punishment for sin that they deserve. He too has come to live the life that God's law demands. That's what we see in his answer to John, verse 15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. What do these words mean? Many commentators have spilt much ink debating precisely what these words mean. But very helpfully, the Lord Jesus uses them again in the next chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Just turn over one page in your Bible, and you'll see them used there at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus says. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 20. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear those two words, fulfill and righteousness? And there we can see that Jesus is speaking about the entirety of God's law. You see, he has come from heaven to earth. He has come as a man. And he has come to live the life of obedience, of perfect obedience to God's law that God demands of his people. He has come to dot every I of God's law. He has come to cross every T of God's law. And all of Jesus' earthly life, all of it, from the moment of his conception, right through his life and ministry, all of his life was one of perfect obedience to all that God's law demands. Here he is, and he is formally accepting this mission in the river Jordan from God. Now just think about Jesus' life for a moment with me. He grew up in the home of Joseph and Mary. And every day of his life, he obeyed what they asked him to do perfectly. He never answered back. And he always honoured them in his mind. Perhaps he went to school. And if he went to school, we, we can imagine that he would have been bullied at school. Because someone who's a perfect child is not going to be popular in the playground or the classroom, are they? But at school, he's looked out for the lonely. He's never boasted of his knowledge, though he is grown in wisdom and stature, though he is a knowledgeable person. And then he's worked for Joseph in that carpenter's shop. There would have been times, no doubt, that he hit his hand with a hammer. That he got a splinter under his skin. But never once, never once has he exclaimed an untrue word or a swear word as that has happened. He's never slacked off for a minute in that carpenter's shop. He's dealing with members of the public. If you deal with members of the public, you know that's awkward and difficult. But never once has he been unfair or unkind to them. And he's been an active part of the community in Nazareth. Imagine the good he's done. How he's helped others and shown love. Think about his prayer life for a moment. How full of concern for the needs of others that it must have been. And he's lived life as a citizen. He's submitted to the Roman authorities. He's given what's due to the tax collectors. As a Jew, Saturday by Saturday, he's gone to the synagogue. And never once as he's come into worship has his heart been unprepared to meet with his God. As he's listened to the prayers, he not for a split second has ever let his mind wander or been distracted. The scroll has been opened. The sermon has been preached. He knows infinitely more about that text than the person at the front. But never once on his way home has he unfairly criticized the preacher. He has lived a perfect life. Every moment, every nanosecond of this man's life has been rendered in absolute obedience to every demand that God's law has placed on him. And he has lived it. 
for you and for me. And you know, as Jesus stands here among the queue of sinners at the Jordan, it gives us an insight into his love for us, his people, doesn't it? How ready he was to be numbered with the transgressors. How willing he was to lay down his life, to take the shame that the death on the cross entailed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin. That is, our sin was imputed, counted to him. That in him we might become the righteousness, the righteousness of God. This is the Son's mission. But secondly, I want you to see the Spirit here. I want you to see the Spirit's anointing. The Spirit's anointing. See, all three persons of the Godhead are present here. And Matthew turns our attention to their work. It doesn't come through in the NIV, which we read from, but if you've got an ESV or another translation, you might see that there is a behold word in verse 16. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God. And again in verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, the Father's voice said, this is my beloved Son. Matthew wants us to see and hear all three persons of the Godhead. Well, what then is the significance of the descent of the Spirit on Jesus? Three quick things I want you to notice. Firstly, Jesus is anointed as God's King. He is anointed as God's King. The Old Testament spoke of Messiah as being a King. Someone who would come with a special fullness of the Holy Spirit. That is, his life would be one that was marked out by being a spirit-filled life. That's why we sung from Psalm 45. There we read, there we sung of the Messiah, who was anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. Jesus had a special fullness of the Spirit. We see here that uh, the Spirit visibly comes to rest on Jesus. He saw, verse 16, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. It's not that the Holy Spirit becomes a dove, but he, 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 he appears visibly as a dove and he comes to rest on Jesus. Now, we mustn't misunderstand that. It's not that Jesus in his human mind and soul and life is being filled with the Spirit at this moment here in the Jordan. No, right from his conception. From his conception, his human life has been upheld by the Spirit. How was he conceived? Well, it was by the power of the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, wasn't it? But rather here, God the Father is publicly and visibly anointing Jesus as his king, as Messiah. Jesus will later say in his ministry in John chapter 6 and verse 27 that on me, God the Father has set his seal. You know what a seal is? 
It's something in the old days that a king had on their signet ring. He stamped his letters with it. Decrees went out with his seal on it. It showed he was a king. And here the Spirit anoints Jesus. He is marked out as God's king. But secondly, he is being strengthened as God's servant. He is being strengthened as God's servant. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is an utterly unique person, isn't he? He has two natures, and yet he is one person. He is fully God, and yet he is fully man. In his humanity, he has taken the place of a servant. And as the servant of the Lord, God strengthens Jesus in his mission by the Spirit. His human mind and soul is upheld strengthened, helped by the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what the Old Testament had prophesied about the servant of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. And in his human life and ministry, Jesus Christ was strengthened by the Spirit. We see that in a number of passages. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot these down. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry was one that was helped by the Spirit. The next verse from the end of our reading, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. His ministry, his, his preaching was helped by the Spirit and his ministry was directed by the Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 50 and verses 4 to 7, we meet the servant of the Lord, one who morning by morning, he tells us, his ear is awakened to read God's word, to hear what God is saying by the Spirit of God. Jesus' devotional life was helped and strengthened by the Spirit. And in Hebrews chapter 9, In verse 14, we read that the Lord Jesus Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. Now, we have to be very careful when we say that about the Lord Jesus. We are not saying, we are not saying that Jesus for a moment ever ceased to be God. He was fully God. He did the things in his ministry that only God can do. He forgave sin. Only God had authority to forgive sin. He healed lepers. It was only God who could heal leprosy. He calmed the storm. Psalm 89. It's God who has authority over the wind and waves and storm. He raised the dead. He was fully God. But he was also fully man. And as a man, as God's servant, he is strengthened and helped 
by the Spirit. And thirdly, notice that not only is he anointed as God's king and strengthened as God's servant, but he is encouraged. He is encouraged as God's Messiah. Did you notice how in verse 16, as Matthew records this for us, the Spirit's descent seems to be especially for Jesus. The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending. As Mark and Luke record it, everyone sees the Spirit, but Matthew draws our attention to Jesus seeing the Spirit's descent. Just think for a moment about the weight on Christ's shoulders as he stands here in the Jordan. He is accepting God's mission for him to bear the sins of his people. Psalm 69 and verse 9 speaks to us of a little of what this would have been like. Here we meet the Messiah. And he says that zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And Jesus, as he stands here in his human mind, is becoming aware that he is going to bear the reproach of his heavenly father. And in his humanity, in his human soul and mind, he is encouraged by this visible representation of the Spirit. Now again, we have to be careful there. We're not for a minute, we're not for a minute saying that Jesus ever doubted that he was truly God. There's not a shred of evidence in the Bible to say that. He knew who he was. He knew that he was God. But as he stands here and accepts God's mission for him as Messiah, He is encouraged, encouraged in his human mind as he sees the Spirit. And brothers and sisters, as the Spirit-filled man, the Lord Jesus Christ lived a life of communion with the Holy Spirit. As Luke records Christ's baptism in Luke chapter 3 and verse 21, The Spirit descends on Jesus as he is praying. Wasn't that his pattern in life? He often rose when it was still dark, went out to a desolate place and prayed. Following his baptism, he will go out into the desert and there he will do battle with Satan as he feels the full force of Satan's temptation. And what will he rely on? Three times he will say, It is is written. It is written. He will pick up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Wonderfully, God has given to us means of grace, His Word, prayer, the sacraments. These are are means for us by which to commune with God, to nurture the life of the Spirit as our Lord has done before us. The Spirit's anointing. So we've seen the Son's mission, the Spirit's anointing, but thirdly, let's hear the Father's voice. The Father's voice. Verse 17, and behold, 
A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Why does the Father say these words? Well, there's a looking back, isn't there, in these words? There's a looking back. These words are a quotation from Psalm 2 and verse 7. And there we read of God, the Lord, saying to Messiah, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And there, in that psalm, as you know, God's Messiah is identified as both a king and a servant in whom God delights. And the Father and the Son have eternally delighted in one another. God the Father has eternally been pleased with God the Son. But now you see, as God the Father looks out over Jesus' earthly life and ministry, he is delighting in Jesus' earthly life. He is the last Adam. He is the second man. The second great representative of God's people. And you remember what God said to the first Adam in the garden when he had rebelled against him in Genesis 3? Where are you, Adam? Who told you, Adam? What have you done, Adam? What a contrast these words are. As God the Father speaks his approval of the earthly life of his Son. But there's a looking forward too, isn't there? There's a looking forward. There's a looking forward to the cross. Because then again, Jesus will stand where sinners ought to stand. At the cross, he will not simply be accepting his office. He will be accomplishing all that his office demands. He will be carrying out the very pinnacle of his mission as he goes to Calvary, as he takes the punishment that sin deserves, as he bears away the sins of his people. He is God's lamb. He is God's priest. Back in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, as God's high priest went into the most holy place, the people nervously waited to see whether he would reappear. His reappearance was a sign that God had accepted the lamb, the sacrifice that he had taken in on their behalf. Atonement for sin had been made. And here, God the Father is saying publicly to his people, Here is my lamb. Here is my sacrifice. And with my lamb, I am well pleased. And as we come to a conclusion of our our sermon this morning, I think that these words of God the Father show us two particular things. Firstly, they remind us of the love of God for sinners. You see, all three persons of the Godhead are present here. Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father's voice pronounces an echo of his eternal plan of redemption. The Son stands here as a man come incarnate in the fullness of time to accomplish redemption on behalf of his people. And the Spirit comes 
to empower, to help, to strengthen Christ in his humanity. Why? Why? Because God loves sinners. A few years ago with the church that I grew up in, uh, took part in the relay race of the Belfast Marathon. I'm sure some of you have probably taken part in it too. And uh, there was a lady from our church who was due to run the last leg. She'd been training for months. She was a really good runner. She'd run a half marathon and done all sorts. But about 100 yards into her leg, she pulled a muscle, pulled up and had to stop. Her husband was nearby watching her. He hadn't prepared for the Belfast Marathon. He was in his jeans and a t-shirt and a coat. He wasn't ready to run that race, but he ran up to her. He took her little badge and pin and everything, and he ran those five and a half miles into the Ormo Park. We'd all ran back to the car and raced ahead of him and got there, and there he was, drenched in sweat, full jeans, you know, absolutely knackered, but he did it. Five and a half miles for his wife. Why? Well, because he loved her. How much more, how much more does the triune God express his eternal love for his people in these words? This is my son in whom I love. As the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4, that this is the love of God, that he has given his son as a propitiation for our sins. These words show us the love of God for sinners. But notice secondly that these words that God the Father speaks here only his, over his only begotten Son. He speaks not only over his only begotten Son, but over every one of his adopted sons and daughters who are in his Son by faith. You see, your experience and my experience in the Christian life is the same, isn't it? We stumble and fall. We feel God every day of our lives. And Satan knows that. He is watching us. And he loves to come and remind us of our failures. To present us with past sins from years ago. With present failure and shortcoming. The lack of love that you have for others. The greed, the selfish ambition in your heart. The judgments that you make deep down about other people. And as he accuses us, we're left red-faced, ashamed. We're looking at the mess of our lives. But then by faith, we can look, brothers and sisters, to this passage. And we can see here, standing in the line, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There he is, waiting with everyone else from Nazareth, with all those sinners. He has no sin. His life is one of utter perfection. Humility, contentment, love. He has always viewed others with grace. And we can hear God's pronouncement over him. This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. And in all who are in him by faith, I am well pleased. This is the king. 
in my place, taking my sin and giving me, covering me with all of his righteousness. As J. Gresham Machen lay dying, I'm sure you know the story well. He's supposed to have sent his friend, John Murray, a telegram. Thank God, he said, for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And one day you will die. And one day I will die. And on that day our only hope will be that we are in Jesus Christ. As Horatius Boner said, Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I have not died, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity.